Have you shipped a million of those things? Yes, sir. Ship them all! We're gonna take them out a whole new door! <laughs> Joker's tainted hundreds of chemicals at the source. Cologne, mouthwash, underarm deodorant. Makeup so pure, even women with sensitive skin could wear it. New and improved Joker products! With a new secret ingredient! So beautiful, every woman will want to. Love that, Joker. Wait till you get a load of me. Oh, I have an intro song that is seriously cool. Salutations and consolations, boys and girls. It's me, Dixby Caravaggio, your friendly neighborhood nostalgia podcaster. Nostalgcaster. Podstalgia. We're working on it. Anyway, I am so very glad that you've tuned in to our very first episode of In Lieu Of. Except, uh, it's not quite an episode exactly. Um, let me try to explain. So, uh, here's kind of what we're going to be doing on this show. These, these things that you're going to be listening to, they're, they're not like episodes, they're more like issues. Uh, think about like an audio serial. Half comic book, half article. It'll make sense. Hopefully. But, um, you know, let's just get this out of the way right off the bat. You must be thinking to yourselves, Mr. Caravaggio, I mean, what gives you the right to entertain us in this way? What are your credentials, after all? Well, I'm... I'm glad you asked. <coughs> Broadcasting from a dilapidated ranch somewhere outside of home, Pennsylvania, Dixby Caravaggio brings his years of experience to bear on In Lua. He's a former intern at the Moscow Bugle, a former consultant for the Techno-Cosmic Research Institute's work on mutagen, a former bone folder fetcher for Dr. Janosch Poha at the Manhattan Museum of Art, and one time he delivered sandwiches to an Axis Chemicals board meeting. Huh, there are a bunch of jokers over there. So all kidding aside, uh, nostalgia has always had it in for me, I guess. And the older that I get, uh, the greater I feel nostalgia's pull. You know what I mean? Don't get me wrong. It's a wonderful drug. And whenever I need a fix, I turn to, I don't know, X-Men the Animated Series, to some iteration of the Ninja Turtles franchise, to one of those interchangeable yet somehow so distinct mid-90s action movies, to the work of Paul Dini or Chris Carter. But with so much material to reconsume, and with so many on-demand choices, it's easy to get lost cycling through reruns. I mean, how many times have you been there? You know, you, you say to yourself, I'm just gonna watch one. I'm just gonna watch Welcome to the Hellmouth, and that's it. And then Saturday happens, and then Sunday, and then you wake up on Monday morning in a haze, in a fog, with Graduation Day Part 1 flickering on your screen. 
Well, that's where this show comes in. Instead of spending hours re-watching movies and cartoons, I offer you this, kiddos. A deep dive into some of my favorite things from the 1980s and 90s. And maybe some stuff from this century, too. We won't just be looking at the movies or TV shows or video games in total isolation, either. I'm really, really interested to see how some of my all-time favorites fit into, or inform, or maybe even clash with the larger contemporaneous histories that surround them. You know, the time when the movie ran theatrically, or when a TV show aired. Sometimes these issues on In Lieu of will be exhaustive. Sometimes very broad in scope. Other times, hyper-focused on just one aspect of a film's plot, or maybe a real-life news scandal. You may agree with my takes on the material. Maybe just a part of what I say will resonate with you. You could also think that I'm completely erroneous, facile, sophomoric, or other such disparagements frequently disinterred during SAT preparation. The point is, kiddos, I want you to think and to feel something. And to let me know your thoughts and feelings in the comments, or in the reviews you write, wherever this podcast finds you. Or in your emails. You can reach me, by the way, at dixby at inlieuofpod.com. That's dixby at inlieuofpod.com. Let me show you what I'm getting at. In today's issue, I look at the United States culture of cosmetics, beauty, and body transformation in the late 1980s and how a psychopath from a summer blockbuster exploited the concerns over what we do to our bodies and the consequences of what we apply to our faces. In lieu of a critical look at our country's obsession with makeup and plastic surgery at the turn of the 90s, how did we get Tim Burton's Batman? Volume 1, Issue 1, Have You Ever Danced with the Devil by the Pale Moonlight? It didn't take the summer solstice to make people go batty in Los Angeles. The premiere of the movie Batman did that job. It took 10 years for the movie to reach the silver screen, and it looks like it struck gold. Dennis Michael reports. The crowd started gathering over the weekend in anticipation of a movie premiere so big it had to be held in two theaters. This evening, Los Angeles has gone bats. That was a news report from 1989. In fact, let me be the first one to welcome you back here to the summer of 1989. I, I, I think for, for most of you, at least for, for some of you, I'm told this will be your first time here in the summer of 1989. So uh, to you, I simply say, welcome. Um, and to me in the mirror, I simply say, you're getting old, Caravaggio. This might be the best summer of all time. In hindsight, uh, and movie-wise, 1989 saw its fair share of cinematic franchise entries. Now, I really wasn't old enough at the time to see some of these, nor was I really interested. I mean, if I'm being honest, I was really into Indiana Jones, right? That was Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade that came out that summer. And uh, I liked Honey, I Shrunk the Kids, or I thought I would like Honey, I Shrunk the Kids. And I mean, Ghostbusters 2, come on, who wouldn't want to go see Ghostbusters 2 because Ghostbusters 1 existed but there were other things that came out that summer, like Friday the 13th Part 8, or Star Trek V, or The Karate Kid 3, and James Bond was doing something. 
you know, this is all stuff that I that I grew to love. But that summer, there was really only one name on my mind, if we're being honest. One guy who was returning to the silver screen for the first time in over 20 years. What are you? I'm Batman. Christopher Reeve's turn as Superman aside, superhero movies really weren't viewed in the industry as safe bets, especially especially in the in the late 80s. They, they were not seen as surefire commercial and critical tentpoles upon which to stake a studio. Until 1989, Batman was remembered mostly uh, as the campy 60s Adam West and Burt Ward television series. While in the meantime, DC Comics had turned toward telling darker, grittier stories, most audiences frankly were unprepared for the version of The Dark Knight that hit screens that summer. Gone were the colorfully tame fights between deputized heroes and whimsical villains. Tim Burton took his cues from seedy, dystopic Frank Miller and Alan Moore graphic novels, presenting a morally complicated Bruce Wayne and a dingy, grimy Gotham City. Oh, and, and, and might I also mention, a psychotic madman bent on etching his unique visage not only as he confesses to Vicky Vale on the $1 bill, but also across the faces of every last citizen of Gotham. If it's not apparent by now, there's a, there's a very clear, uh, definite reason uh, why I chose 1989's Batman as the topic for the very first issue of In Lieu Of. And that is simply this. I love this movie. Ask anyone who's met me in real life for more than 20 consecutive minutes. The subject of Batman usually comes up, and not long after, I bring up this movie. It's the first non-Disney sort of flick I remember seeing as a kid. In fact, I probably saw it when I was a little too young. Don't be writing this stuff in your newspaper, Knox. It'll ruin your already useless reputation. Lieutenant, every punk in this town is scared stiff. You know what they say? They say he can't be killed. They say he drinks blood. They say... I say you're full of shit, Knox. Uh, you can quote me on that. So there's there's actually a funny true story behind this um, enchanted scene from the from the film Batman. Um, uh, I, we would watch this movie frequently, my my mom and I. And then you know one day um, we were playing a, a game. It's a very I think a familiar game to to a lot of you out there, um, where someone says you know you're you're full of something, and then the other person responds you're full of something else. So my mom said something like you know you're full of baloney, and and and. And I, 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 of course, responded, you're full of peanut butter sandwiches. And, and, and she was like, well, you're full of lima beans. <laughs> and I responded, well, you're full of shit knocks. It wasn't long after this encounter um, that she began muting the curse words when we watched Batman together. And I'm not kidding when I say we watched it so often that I would learn where the curse words were based on her muting. And I would mute them myself, whether she was in the room or not. I can quote the script, of course. I, I have Danny Elfman's score memorized. Um, I, I absolutely adore Prince's companion album to this movie. Uh, and even when I rewatch it now, even now, I see new things. You know, stuff I thought I remembered happening a certain way. But, but, but then when I watch it, it's, it's suddenly shifted. Here's an example of what I'm talking about. When Jack Nicholson's character, uh, Jack Napier, falls into the acid. 
Did Batman lose his grip? Or did he intentionally let him slip? Leave it to Michael Keaton's eyes from beneath the mask to plant this doubt in our minds. Look at his face. Pause it right there. Does he just see another nameless criminal? Or does he perhaps see a flash of the man who killed his parents? Speaking of good old Jack Napier and his early pre-Joker arc in the movie, here's the abridged version. Jack is a bad guy. Jack is a big-time mob boss, but not the biggest. Jack does eventually fool around with the big boss's girl, Alicia, played by Jerry Hall. The big boss sets Jack up. Jack has a confrontation with Batman. Jack falls into a vat of acid. Jack survives somehow. Jack undergoes a botched plastic surgery procedure. There will be more on that later. Jack finds his skin has been permanently bleached white, his lips permanently stained red, his hair permanently dyed green. So, of course, he he takes the only reasonable course of action. Jack assumes the persona of a homicidal clown and creates a toxin that kills his victims while permanently contorting their faces into gruesome smiles. I mean, we've all been there, right? For any comic or or cartoon fan, this is the Joker's typical M.O. In 2008's The Dark Knight, Heath Ledger's version of the character used a knife to uh, carve smiles on his victims' faces. In the 90s animated series, Mark Hamill's Joker used gas from his trick lapel or from an explosive. Each of these methods exist on a spectrum for me, all ultimately feeding the Joker's characteristic narcissism. And you might remember Nicholson's Joker doing something similar to this uh, towards the end of the 1989 Batman movie. When he's cavalcading down Main Street on the giant anniversary cake, he's he's strutting to Prince's sonic effluence, and he's and he's whipping cash from garbage bags down into the crowd, and he's leading a troop of parade balloons filled with poisonous Smilex gas. The whole scene is spectacularly Joker. It's loud, brazen, theatrical. But this isn't how the Joker originally devised the distribution of his poison. This very public performance doesn't really gel with the film's presentation of the character up to this point. In fact, the, the, the scene with the giant cake and him throwing the money and Prince singing trust, uh, this was the Joker's last resort. His hand was actually forced by Batman earlier in the film. Do you remember the scene that I played at the beginning of the issue where the Joker said he would be taking him out a whole new door? Let's go back to shortly after that moment in the film to a Gotham City news broadcast where the Joker's first original plan, the one which serves as the basis for this issue, comes to terrifying fruition. Cue music. Cue Becky. Good evening. The fashion world was stunned today by the sudden deaths of models Candy Walker and Amanda Keeler. Cause of death has been attributed to a violent allergic reaction, although authorities have not ruled out the possibility of drug use. Peter. This just in. Three mysterious deaths at a beauty parlor in... (laughs) 
at a beauty parlor in Gotham were discovered today. Barry, what the hell's going on? Becky, this is hardly the... Becky! Kill a camera. Becky collapses backwards in her chair. Interns rush over to help only to discover the Joker's smile stricken across her face. Wait, what the hell just happened? Well, don't worry, folks. The Joker quickly commandeers the airwaves to explain. New and improved Joker products! With a new secret ingredient! Smiley. What is this? I don't know. Uh-oh. You don't look happy. He's been using Brand X. But with new and improved Joker brand. I get a grin, again, and again. <laughs> I know what you're saying. Where can I get these fine new items? Well, that's the gang. Chances are you bought them already. <laughs> ah, I see. So the joke is toxic makeup. It doesn't sound too scary, right? But people are dying, and no one seems to know why. Or how it's happening. Or what combination of tainted products could be deadly. Leave it to the spinning newspaper trope to literally spell it out for us. Cosmetic scare in Gotham. Product tampering claims 13 lives. Who is the mysterious Joker? A day or two of movie time, I assume, passes. And the next news broadcast explains just how Gotham is coping with everything. Six new deaths with no clues as to the Joker's deadly weapon. And what is the pattern? Foods, alcohol, or beauty and hygiene products? Cologne, mouthwash, underarm deodorant? Or worse yet, there may be no pattern. The search goes on through Gotham's shopping nightmare. The news anchors don't look good. The man's acne is out of control. The woman's frizzed hair seems beyond saving. The inference is they smell bad. The wider inference is, so does the rest of the city. That man is, of course, on the case, though. After learning the Joker has tainted products with his poison, Bruce says to Alfred in one of the movie's most tragically overlooked lines, Alfred, let's go shopping. It's pitched perfect in its subtlety. It reminds me of that moment from 2016's uh, contentious Batman versus Superman film where Bruce prepares and serves Alfred a cup of hot coffee in the morning when Alfred's coming in with the newspaper. Just one of those scenes that I'm so glad exists, even if I'm not so glad it exists in the movie that it exists in. I'm sure that won't be the last time we'll be discussing Batman v <clears throat> Superman. Moving on. After heading to the department store and collecting what I imagine is every possible cosmetic and hygiene product in the greater Gotham City limits, Batman cracks the code. Uh, we don't see him crack the code. This happens off screen. He absconds with Kim Basinger's Vicky Vale to the Batcave and reveals as much. What is all this? The police have got it wrong. They're looking for one product. The Joker has tainted hundreds of chemicals at the source. And all shipments of products would be poisoned. And would all be dead. No. The poison only works when the components are mixed. Hairspray won't do it alone, but hairspray mixed with lipstick and perfume will be toxic and untraceable. Cool. Great. So all's well then. Batman cracks the code and saves the day. Except 
the audience still has just under an hour of movie left. But the Joker's plan has been thwarted. For the moment. Right? This subplot is so short-lived and so seemingly easy to foil. Um, I mean, think about it. You know, Batman hears that products are tainted. He goes to the grocery store with Alfred. He, he comes back to the Batcave and just figures it out. He just, he just cracks the code. I mean, I would have skipped this subplot entirely. I think I would have gone straight to, you know, he's in the museum. He's, he's destroying the paintings. Um, and then, and then immediately he's on the giant anniversary cake and he's poisoning everyone. You know, I would have fast forwarded right to the end. But then again, I was a kid in 1989 and had no clue or concept of how product tampering, like what the Joker does in this movie, could actually be scarier than demonic smiles or shadowy figures. How it could completely paralyze a consumer population. Not long before, in uh, 1982, someone laced over-the-counter Tylenol capsules with cyanide in the Chicago area killing seven people. The aftermath of the Chicago Tylenol murders, I can't believe that's even a thing, introduced a heightened scrutiny on manufacturing quality control and tamper-evident packaging and new regulations. But what about makeup? You know, the stuff that the Joker's messing with in the movie. Well, while the Federal Food, Drug, and Cosmetic Act of 1938 gave the FDA power to remove harmful products from store shelves, the agency actually, to this day, can neither authorize nor deny any cosmetic products from entering the market. A subsection of the U.S. Code states that, quote, the tampering must be done with reckless disregard for the risk that another person will be placed in danger of death or bodily injury. Furthermore, the tampering must be done under circumstances manifesting extreme indifference to the risk of death or bodily injury, end quote. Huh. Reckless disregard and extreme indifference. This is the Joker we're talking about. Consumer anxiety over the security of their cosmetics permeates late 80s advertising. And I'm not just talking about tamper-proof packaging either. Listen quickly to this 1988 CoverGirl commercial featuring Christy Brinkley. <laughs> CoverGirl clean makeup. I mean, I say Fresh. Natural. The only makeup with clean Noxema ingredients. So good to your skin. Fresh. Natural. Clean. Products that were good to and even good for your skin were heavily pushed. These products touted a natural look. Natural, of course, meaning natural for white skin. Just look at the recent success of Fenty Beauty. Rihanna's cosmetic line, and all the conversations that have come about because of this company. Just look at that to begin to understand the long, very long history of what these 80s commercials meant by natural. But don't worry, fellas, you're all included too. I know these makeup commercials are, are geared almost exclusively towards white women, but the Joker is nothing if not an equal opportunity homicidal maniac. If you don't wear makeup, no worries. We've got you. We've got you covered. Remember what the the news anchor said: cologne, mouthwash, 
Underarm deodorant? You probably wear deodorant. And brush your teeth. Remember what Batman tells Vicky. The poison only works when the components are mixed. The Joker has tainted hundreds of chemicals at the source. In other words, no one is safe. How far back does this anxiety go, though? I'm, I'm really interested to, to understand the fear that we can't trust the base level materials that make up our makeup. Where does this come from? Uh, I, I started to look around and to find out it, I, I wanted to I wanted to work my way from the from the back or, or, or from the beginning to the now. So I so I did go back. I mean, way back to Roman antiquity to see what writers and artists of the time thought about such things as cosmetics, makeup, painting one's face. Now, your friendly neighborhood comrade, Dixby Caravaggio, is many things. A classic scholar, though he is not. So for uh, a much of the next section of this issue, I am indebted to two contemporary voices uh, on this subject. Uh, one is Dr. Susan Stewart, uh, and the other is Dr. Kelly Olson. And I have links to both of their bios, um, where they work, where they teach, and um, lists of their books and their work uh, down in the description of today's issue. Uh, Dr. Stewart's 2007 book entitled Cosmetics and Perfume in the Roman World, it really breaks down makeup and its many uses in ancient Rome. Uh, Dr. Olson's um, 2009 article entitled Cosmetics in Roman Antiquity, Substance, Remedy, Poison, you can already see why I love this, is an equally invaluable study on the subject, at least it was for me. Um, after reading both sources, one thing was clear to me, and I will quote uh, Dr. Stewart here. Quote, while some beauty products may have improved one's appearance, those who wrote about medical matters knew that a number of these products could also do serious harm. Many cosmetics were corrosive or even poisonous. Similarly, uh, Dr. Olson explains that the raw materials, and this is the important part, I think, the raw materials used in makeup during this time, quote, functioned primarily as medicines or pigments and only secondarily as cosmetics. I got to uh, brush up on my Latin when uh, I, was, I was doing this research for this issue, and uh, I learned from, I believe it was Dr. Olson's uh, piece, uh, the Latin word medicamentum uh, is often used to describe makeup in these ancient texts. The thing about this word uh, medicamentum, I hope I'm pronouncing that correctly, uh, is that it meant different things at different times times, or it could mean different things at different times. Uh, Stewart writes that it, it was, quote, a uh, general term for cosmetic in Latin, concerned not only with the art of adornment, but also with coloring and dyeing, with drugs and potions, remedies, and even enchantments. And Olson writes that the word could also mean different things at the same time, there's an insane sentence where she talks about the word medicamen, and it's being used to describe a healing remedy. But then in the very same work, medicamen is used uh, to describe the poison that was, that was uh, used on the Emperor Claudius. To us, right now, in the 21st century, this sounds like a distinction worth making, doesn't it? For us, this also sounds crazy. Crazy like the Tylenol murders. 
the conflation of medicine and poison, the transformation of something meant to cure into something meant to kill. Dr. Stewart tells us that substances like white lead, red lead, and cinnabar were widely used as cosmetics and that the toxic risks associated with them were well known. Here's the thing, though, and I'll quote Dr. Stewart again. Despite its potentially harmful effects, the benefits of white lead in terms of its ability to make a woman look attractive seem to have outweighed the risks. For women living in the empire, the daily risk-versus-reward calculation of using or not using makeup complicates what was expected of women, of how they presented themselves, and of how they were represented, not only by their own hand, but by the male writers, thinkers, and, this one's important for later, artists of the time. I found this, I found this next part uh, really, really fascinating. Dr. Olson notes that, quote, Besides their cosmetic or medicinal purpose, the materials that women used to paint themselves were often the tints used by ancient artists. Wait a minute, I thought artists use oils, acrylics, mixed media stuff. None of which are especially enticing as a double for makeup. But it's a serious and extremely important consideration when talking about the representation of women by men through art. After all, we tend to rely on surviving paintings and sculptures, don't we? The extant representations of this ideal masculinity and ideal femininity as interpreted by men. For a native or conquered Roman woman existing in ancient Roman culture, using makeup was, maybe in some small measure, a way of creating her own agency. As Dr. Olson puts it, quote, she literally constructed herself as an art object using even the same materials as artists. The film Batman makes it clear that the Joker considers himself first and foremost, an artist. And that's the joke. Throughout his history in comic books, TV, and film, the Joker's jokes are never funny, or they're only funny to him, and often to Harley Quinn. By pursuing the promise of a better, more natural-looking, more perfect face, base materials identified for their cosmetic properties have been isolated and elevated throughout our history. So that by the 20th century, makeup was a multi-billion dollar industry. The rising importance of makeup in American popular culture meant more products in more homes, touching more skin. The joke's on us. But the Joker isn't interested in simply padding his body count. He wants his mass murdering to be an original creation. The planning, staging, and execution are all extremely important to how he characterizes success. I've got to believe that any other path of lesser artistic consideration would be beneath him. 
Another reason why the scene with the deadly parade balloons rings less true to the character within the context of the film? Weirdly, it's so passé. Where's the artistic comportment of enticing citizens together only to exterminate them? This isn't something for a maquillier like the Joker who brags to Vicky Vale that, quote, he was in the bath one day when he realized why he was destined for greatness. You know how concerned people are about appearances. This is attractive, that is not. Well, that is all behind me. I now do what other people only dream. I make art until someone dies. See? <laughs> I am the world's first fully functioning homicidal artist. Prior to the museum scene, Bruce Wayne notes to Alfred while perusing Jack Napier's psychological profile that before becoming the Joker, Napier showed, quote, aptitudes for science, chemistry, and art. And art? I don't remember the Joker as an artist from the comics. Well, uh, Cesar Romero wasn't a pop art on the old 60s show, but that was only for like a few episodes. Unlike that Joker, Jack Nicholson's Joker instead poses a more serious question. And this is to borrow from another of Batman's rogues gallery. Riddle me this. What happens when a boundless artistic compulsion meets a multinational industry with a hand in every medicine cabinet in America? Answer? Catastrophe. That scales. Calling it, quote, the new aesthetic, the Joker conceives of his crimes as art. His victim's faces, a canvas. Listen. We mustn't compare ourselves to regular people. We're artists. For instance, let me challenge you with a little piece I did. Bob, Alicia. Jack, you said I could watch you improve the paintings. Oh, I'm in trouble now. <laughs> Why is she wearing a mask? Well, she's just a sketch, really. Alicia, sit down. Show the lady why you wear the mask. You see, Miss Vale, Alicia's been made over in line with my new philosophy, so now, like me, she is a living work of art. He refers to Alicia as a sketch, reducing her, or maybe in his deranged mind elevating her, I don't know, to an artistic exercise. He and Vicky may not be, quote, regular people, but those regular people are dying. And what they're dying for? are the cultural norms of body enhancement and improvement. I mentioned the Joker's botched plastic surgery earlier, and that was intentional. We remember the famous plastic surgery scene uh, for the famous line, or at least it's famous in my mind, Mirror. Mirror! The plastic surgeon's trembling hands, Jack Napier in silhouette, staring at his new complexion, his descent into insanity marked by uncontrollably manic laughter. But this scene isn't only important within the context of the movie. It's also important within the context of the late 1980s in the United States, a decade that saw not only a dramatic increase in the number, but also a dramatic shift in the type of plastic surgery procedures performed. And when I started to think back about plastic surgery and what I knew about plastic surgery in the, in the early 90s, um, it reminded me of something that I'd read 
for a, a class. Uh, it was it was by Dr. Susan Bordeaux. It's her 1993 book, Unbearable Weight, Feminism, Western Culture, and the Body. Dr. Bordeaux writes that, quote, Gradually and surely, a technology that was first aimed at the replacement of malfunctioning parts has generated an industry and an ideology fueled by fantasies of rearranging, transforming, and correcting. An ideology of limitless improvement and change, defying the historicity, the mortality, and indeed the very materiality of the body. Bordeaux calls this cultural plastic. The Joker's surgery, intended to be corrective, but which became transformative, can be read as an allusion to what happened to the plastic surgery industry in the 80s. Bordeaux writes again, quote, Plastic surgery, whose repeated and purely cosmetic employment has been legitimated by Michael Jackson, Cher, and others, has become a fabulously expanding industry, extending its domain from nose jobs, facelifts, tummy tucks, and breast augmentations to collagen-plumped lips and liposuction-shaped ankles, calves, and buttocks. In 1989, 681,000 procedures were done, up to 80% over 1981. And these trends have only accelerated. Cosmetics aren't going anywhere, right? They're seemingly immune to international strains, to market instabilities. Makeup companies in 2017 surpassed Wall Street expectations. And this was happening all over the place. Estee Lauder, Ulta Beauty, uh, uh, Elf, 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 uh, they all did exceedingly well. On his year-end earnings call, uh, the Estee Lauder president and CEO reported his company, quote, delivered sales growth of 7%, approximately two points ahead of global prestige beauty. The eighth consecutive year, the company generated a strong performance and outperformed the industry. And now we move on to uh, Elf, uh, their top brass who touted similar growth with their, quote, third quarter results highlighted by a 28% increase in net sales. That company went public in 2016. Uh, from what I from what I understand, banking on millennials by offering their products at comparably cheaper prices. I say millennials because the cosmetics market is pulling in revenue from across the gender spectrum. A write up in the Huffington Post pointed to Instagram for the rise of beauty boys, males who are makeup artists or who just love wearing makeup. From established TV to up and coming social media personalities, makeup is everywhere and increasingly more noticeable. Um, especially when it's absent. Imagine if those Gotham City news anchors that we listened to earlier had to broadcast today in the era of high-def television and 4K, 8K streaming. I'm just glad I'm doing a podcast. As for cosmetic surgery... According to published statistics from the American Society of Plastic Surgeons, of the nearly 1.8 million cosmetic surgical procedures performed in 2016, the top five were breast augmentation, liposuction, nose reshaping, eyelid surgery, and facelifts. The top five procedure types had all increased over the same procedures performed in 2015 by a range of 2 to 6%.
Makeup and cosmetic surgeries have perhaps never been more ubiquitous, and our cultural identity perhaps never so beholden to them as right now. And remember, as I close here with something from Bordeaux, um, this was written in 1993. Um, as she reminds us, quote, Popular culture does not apply any breaks to these fantasies of rearrangement and self-transformation. Rather, we are constantly told that we can choose our own bodies. Choose our own bodies. But what happens when someone makes the choice for us? The choice of what we look like. What if that person doesn't have our best interest or even our preference in mind? What if that person is insane? A figure of indiscriminate narcissism and unbridled access to the products that make us us. The lesson of Batman becomes not only cultural critique, but also a kind of warning. If we choose this path, this engagement with tools of unending transformation and bodily revision, to open this door may leave us all susceptible to being tampered with. I guess it's not only the products at risk of becoming unalterably changed, but also ourselves. You can find links to everything that you heard today in the description below. Um, I have links for um, Dr. Stewart and Dr. Olson. I have links to the advertisements and to the news broadcast and to everything down below. So I encourage you to continue to look into this for yourself. We definitely scratched the surface today, but this was by no means a, a thoroughly exhaustive take uh, on this material. So please, kiddos, do more digging. Find things that maybe contradict what I said today. And, and again, leave those contradictions in, in the reviews that you write. Or remember, send me an email, dixby at inlueofpod.com. As we close here on issue one, I just want to say a big thank you to everyone who worked on 1989's Batman. If you can hear me out there, if you're listening, because I honestly don't know what I would do or where I would be without this movie existing. But I must reserve the biggest thank you to all of you kiddos, to everyone who tuned in to our very first inaugural issue of In Lieu Of. What's that? Yeah. Oh, that's a... You know what? Fair question. That's actually a really good question. What about the second issue? Well, you know, I don't want to give too much away, but I do love teasers in all of their forms. I sense a tradition emerging. You know, they say three species disappear off the planet every day. You wonder how many new ones are being created. Huh. Sounds spooky. In lieu of a more competent host, I'm Dixby Caravaggio. See you next time, kiddos. <laughs>